You know, there are, uh, there are some areas where when people are serving and doing their job, you don't hardly notice at all. And buildings and grounds is one of those. You know, we've gotten really used to showing up to a, a clean facility where things work. The grass is mowed and the flower beds are weed-free and we have a clean parking lot. And we've gotten so used to it that we don't hardly notice it anymore. And I, I just thought I would pause for a second and thank our deacons over building and grounds, Jordan Wright and Richard Bryan, for a job well done. They take care of so many things that, that we don't notice. And under their oversights, uh, some of uh, the contractors who, who work for um, the company who does some cleaning, Deborah Harbin goes to church here, and she cleans a lot of our buildings. Sonny and Scott Shockey work there too, and, and they keep our, our building clean. My father-in-law, Brian Folks, and his business partner, Kirk, do the mowing outside. I mean, there are a lot of people contributing, but, but I have noticed one thing. Often on the weekends, you might see a white Toyota pickup truck parked outside. And you might see a bunch of red-headed kids running all over the place. And those are Richard Bryan's slave labor um, that he has enlisted to be sure that everything is taken care of. And he also has a team of volunteers that will work with him outside taking care of the grounds. I bring that up to say I'm trying to highlight positive things that are happening here. There's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that we take for granted every day. A lot of ways that you can serve and be involved that are important. And, and that make what we do here each week possible and comfortable and easier for all of us. And, and I think those who serve behind the scenes, maybe frontline serving isn't your thing, but there are places for everyone to serve, and I hope that you're looking for your place. How many of y'all heard about the, uh, the debacle with the Taylor Swift concert? Yeah. I'm not much one to follow Taylor Swift, but it was all over the news for a while. In fact, I was looking online and I saw this article. Senate announces hearing after chaos over Taylor Swift ticket sales. <laughs> Man, that was an article from the New York Times. So the Senate is getting involved in this chaos. There says a committee led by Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota will examine the ticketing industry after failures last week frustrated millions of the superstar's fans. So apparently this ticket sales platform didn't perform as expected, and there were a lot of Taylor Swift superfans who were left without tickets to her upcoming tour. And this was a really big deal. There was this frenzy of demand that outran supply, and the prices to her tickets got driven up to astronomical levels. So I found another article. This was from a Los Angeles news station, and it was entitled, Don't Buy This, Buy This Instead. And it started this way. It said, Taylor Swift fans worldwide shelled out millions of dollars for tickets to the singer's heiress tour, assuming they could log into Ticketmaster. A front row seat to her L.A. concert was going for as much as $11,000 last week. The article then went ahead to list all of the things that you could do instead of sit on the front row at a Taylor Swift concert. Like you could buy 11,000 cans of refreshing Arizona iced tea. <laughs> or you could take a family trip to Walt Disney World. Or a two-person, four-day, three-night romantic trip to Rome. Um, said that you could feed a family of four for a year and still have a bit left to eat out on. Or, and this one, this one really got me, you could invest it wisely and end up with enough to pay for your child's college education. <laughs> All for a front row seat to a Taylor Swift concert. What in the world is happening? <laughs> Do you ever just read the news and you think, what, 
what's going on in this country with people? You know, we love famous and notable people, don't we? You know, some of you may not know much about Taylor Swift, but I heard a lot of you talking about the Queen of England. When she died, you tuned into her funeral. Why? I, I, I don't know, because we're interested in famous and notable people. Now, you may be wondering what a, a Taylor Swift concert or the Queen of England have to do with the Messiah. And here's my answer. Absolutely nothing. In fact, even the first century superstars were far, far away from the story. There were no prominent teachers, no influential leaders, no Jewish powers, no Roman authorities, no one famous or well-known or known at all in our story this week. This week, the greatest story ever told finds itself in the living room, maybe, we're not told exactly where, of a nobody from nowhere who wouldn't have been discernible from you or me. Let's read it together in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As we work our way through the text this morning, we're going to start by asking ourselves questions of fact. What do we see in the text itself? After we've unpacked that, we're going to explore and look at the things we can learn from the text. We're going to ask ourselves why it was there and why it matters. And then we're going to end by trying to determine what it is that we're supposed to do with this message that we have found. So as we move into the text, I, I really see five main things that happen. And the text starts with an introduction to Mary in verses 26 and 27. But it's notable that it doesn't really tell us very much about her. And I, and I believe that's by design. You know, we can read between the lines, and a lot of scholars have, and, and, and they believe that Mary, as a relative to, to Elizabeth, probably had some priestly connections in her family. Many believe Mary herself had connections to the lineage of King David, though Luke doesn't specifically say this. But if we set aside some of those kind of vague determinations that, that we make by reading between the lines, you know, we really just don't know much about her. 
other than she was a young virgin, and she was named Mary. We learn a little bit about where she's from, the town of Nazareth, but if you try to do some research about Nazareth, you'll find that it was never mentioned in any sort of literature prior to the New Testament. Now, we've discovered through archaeological evidence that it has existed for a long time, but apparently nothing of enough prominence to show up into the history books ever happened there for it to be written about. In fact, it seems like during the time of Christ, there was a small town that probably had two to 500 people in it. You know, a lot of this has been made of the person of Mary, but the reality is this. We simply don't know much about her. It's hard for us to comprehend and hear this story with the same ear, the same outlook as those early Christians would have heard it. Because we have 2,000 years of church history where we've made this huge deal about Mary and, and Nazareth, but if we put ourselves in their shoes, how would we hear the story? You know, we hear about Mary, the mother of Jesus from the town of Nazareth, and you might as well say that Taylor Swift was playing a concert in Dallas. Okay? It's a household name in a household place. But when they heard about Mary, that would have been like me saying to you, I ran into Jennifer Jones from Westbrook, Texas in the post office the other day. <laughs> you would say, Jennifer Jones, and you might try to find her on Facebook, but there would be so many you wouldn't know who I was talking about. And Westbrook, some of you are fighting the urge right now to Google on your phone because you've heard the name, but you're not sure where it is. It's just past Sweetwater, off of I-20, okay, between, what is it, Sweetwater, just outside of Colorado City, I think, Westbrook. So there it is. Stay with me. Don't let me lose you uh, Googling on your phone. You know, there are, there are certainly some locals who would know about that name and that place. There's some of us around here who would be familiar enough to know it existed, but to most of the world, that would mean nothing. They would have no idea who I was talking about. We are obsessed with people of prominence, yet Mary was anything but that. And the lack of significance is what I find significant as we start into this text. The first century reader would have made a special note in their mind at the beginning of the story that God went to an odd person in a really odd place. And just like you might have had to look up Westbrook on your phone, they would have had to ask for directions to Nazareth. And the young woman named Mary would have seemed bland and indiscernible from a wide number of people. And knowing this makes what happens in the text next stand out even more. The angel Gabriel in Luke 1, 28-30 shows up with a really bold declaration for Mary. He leads with, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now I hear that and I immediately ask myself, why was she favored and why was the Lord with her? And was there something about Mary that caused this favor to fall or was it simply God's choosing? Was there something about her that caused the Lord to be with her? The effects of this pronouncement by Gabriel start to help us answer these questions because we see in verse 29 that she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She was troubled, and Gabriel told her not to be afraid. So there was fear in Mary, and the text tells us it's because of what he was saying. And then we read that she tried to discern. This means it was confusing to her, and, and she didn't understand. And the text tells us this was because of the greeting. So we have a young woman here 
whose knee-jerk reaction at this pronouncement was fear and confusion. And there's so many possibilities for why. You know, we often see in Scripture that fear is elicited by the presence of an angel. It's certainly possible that hearing the Lord is with you and seeing an angelic being elicited this response. I think it's also possible that Mary was keenly aware that she was a nobody from nowhere. You know, last week we saw Zacharias. He was a male, a priest. He was in the temple, and he was interacting with God when an angel showed up. Yet here we have a young female in the middle of nowhere sitting in front of an angel. I don't think Mary would have heard that she found favor and have been troubled if she felt like she deserved it. I think she was probably just as confused as us. We don't know why she found favor. We just know that she did. Mary had been chosen by God, not because of something she did or of something she deserved. She was the recipient of God's grace, an undeserved gift. Now, in verses 31 and 32, we learn exactly what that gift was, and it was a big, big gift. He told her, you're going to have a baby boy, and you're going to name him Jesus. Jesus means the Lord saves. And he's not going to be a a normal baby. He's going to be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High, and he'll be given the throne of his father, David. And he will reign in the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end Gabriel says. I mean, that's a, that's a huge announcement, but I don't think Mary had really grasped the reality of what was being told to her at this point. In fact, she has a really pointed question. In verse 34, Mary asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? You see, Mary's first thought was not supernatural conception, but probably more likely How's this going to work because I'm not married yet? She's thinking about her future husband. In fact, when Gabriel had made reference to the child's connection with David, I would assume Mary's mind first went to Joseph. But that was not how it was going to work this time. And the response to Mary's very important question helps us wrap our mind around the the hugeness of of what this event means and and who this child is going to be. Gabriel makes it very clear in verse 35 that her conception is going to emanate from the Holy Spirit through the power of God. Therefore, the text tells us, the child to be born will be called, will be holy, the Son of God. Because of this markedly miraculous conception, this child is going to be different. He's going to be flesh and blood, yes, but but he doesn't have an earthly father. He's not made from flesh and blood. This is the Son of God. Can, Can you imagine what Mary would have been thinking in this moment? She'd already been told she was going to have a child who was going to reign eternally, and now she's been told that the child she's going to carry is going to be the Son of God, that God is going to use her body to bring into existence the child of God that all of Israel has been waiting on. Now, the text gives us no indication that Mary had any doubts, but just in case, Gabriel provides some evidence that the ball is already rolling because Elizabeth is going to have a son despite being barren. 
And he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, most of us, if you're like me, at this point, you would want to do a little bit of arguing. I know nothing's impossible with God, but this is not how things work. If one thing is clear from the beginning of time, we understand this process. That's not what Mary does. In verse 38, we see that Mary's response, and it, and it is probably the most simple, eloquent response that could have come out of a human being's mouth. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, I'm at your disposal, God. So, okay. You own me. Use me how you please. My life and my body are yours. Do what needs to be done. Who am I to argue? Sounds like a plan. Let's go. That's what Mary said. Church, we just stepped into a crazy conversation. It's easy to read about Mary and what Gabriel claims and what he announces in her question and his response and fail to realize how big of a deal that this really is. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a young Jewish woman engaged to be married, looking forward to a simple and predictable life and then suddenly be delivered this news? News that breaks every social norm and then every rule of biology that the most powerful being in the universe is sending a son through you to establish an eternal kingdom. We need to look at three things that we can learn by slowing down and noticing what is here. And the first is a big one. It's what God needs. You know, each year I attempt to plant a garden and the needs of plants are complex and I find that more often than not, I fail. I'm really bad at growing things. Plants need the right soil and the right amount of water and the right amount of sunlight and the right bugs and they need to not have the wrong bugs and they need someone to weed them at the right time and sometimes I can't even tell the difference in them and a weed and I pull up the wrong one. They need someone who knows when to harvest and that gives them the right amount of protection and the right amount of nurture. And how we provide these things might look different in different environments but the needs of each plant stay consistent. If you fail to provide what a plant needs in the right balance, it's not going to grow. You're going to fail. Unless you're God. We think humanity needs salvation. And that happens by putting the right people in power and spending money on the right things and prioritizing the right things. And this is going to be accomplished through a healthy government and Christian education and healthy families in the church getting out and making things happen. We think our future needs protecting, and that happens with smart savings and smart investments and retirement planning. We think the answer to most of our problems lies in keeping the balance of power with the good guys. That's what we think. But God stepped into the picture. He used a tiny nation with no power who had failed to follow him for thousands of years. He used a no-name maiden from a no-name town to carry his son into the world. And speaking of his son... He used the ugly, despised son of a carpenter who would be viewed as a heretic and a criminal and then humiliated before all of humanity in the worst way possible to demonstrate the magnitude of his love for all of us. God certainly doesn't need anything. Never in a million years would you have chosen this person, Mary, in this time, in this place, for this job,
because Mary didn't have what it takes. There is no way someone raised by her could reign over an eternal kingdom. But here's the deal. Mary didn't need to have what it takes because God had it. God has no needs from us because he's all-sufficient and he's all-powerful and he is totally in control. And as Gabriel said, nothing is impossible for God. Now, the second thing we learn is what made Jesus special. We've learned about God and how he's chosen to operate, and that leads us into this next major lesson. This account that Luke gives us teaches us something very important about Jesus, something that set him apart and made him different. You know, in verses 31 through 33, Mary's been told all of these glorious things about Christ and his, his reign and how it will be. But in verse 35, we are told something marvelous. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy and the Son of God. I've said it once already, but it needs to be said again. Jesus emanated from the Holy Spirit through the power of God Almighty Himself. Jesus was a man. He was grown in the womb of a woman. He was undeniably flesh and blood, but He originated from God. Now, I'm not quite sure how the science worked here, but I don't think Jesus had any of Mary or any of Joseph's DNA. I believe the text implies Mary was a surrogate for God Himself, carrying God in physical form into the world. Which brings us to our third and final reality, the right posture for approaching a holy God. We've seen Mary in the text move through several different postures. Fear and confusion came first. And then came genuine questioning. But here at the end, we see her final state, the state of humble submission. To be honest, what else was she going to say in response to this news? No, thank you? Or, yeah, that sounds okay, but have you thought about doing it this way? You know, her, her response gives me chills. The, the text simply tells us two things, that she understood her role as that of lesser, the one who answered to God and whose life was under his direction. And she believed his word was powerful enough to make the impossible possible. So what do we do with what the text has presented? It's introduced us to Mary and told us a little bit about her. It's told us what is going to happen. It's answered the big question of, of how. It shows us the, the posture that she chooses to respond with. We've learned about God and his needs, and we've seen what makes Jesus so special, and we've seen the model for how to respond to a holy God. And so the next question I have to ask is, is what about me? What about you? What, what do we do here? Well, knowing all that we know about God, that He has a plan, that He works in ways that run counter to what we expect, that He doesn't need anything from us, that He can literally do whatever He wants, and yet He's chosen to bless us with a Savior and a kingdom. And knowing what we know about Christ, that He was God in the flesh, that He was born of a virgin, that He originated from the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High, I think... Our only response is to assume the same position as Mary, or we will find ourselves fighting a battle we cannot win. Behold, 
I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So much of Mary's story parallels our own. She found favor that she didn't deserve. God promised her something that was amazing. God promised her something that could not happen under her own power, but God entered the picture and he made it happen anyway. God could have been anything and he could have interacted with his creation in any way, yet he chose to bless us. And our only response can be this one. I'll do as you say. I'll accept what you give because I know who you are and the only thing I can do is submit to your will. Just like Mary, you are not your own. You know, in Acts 26, 14, Jesus approaches Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You, you can follow or you can kick against the goads. You can fight a losing battle, but why would you? The creator of the universe has looked on you with favor. The creator of the universe has promised you something wonderful. The creator of the universe has done something for you that you cannot do for yourself. Why would you serve anyone else? Just like Mary, you can trust his word. You know, if his word had bad news, I could understand people at least attempting to kick back. But his word delivers the most glorious news known to mankind. It's in the name that Gabriel gave to her son, Jesus. The Lord saves. Psalms 46.10 reads, Save striving and know that I'm God. You can stop trying to do God's job. You can be still. Cease striving and just do what he's asked you. And what is that? Micah 6, 8 said, He's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, the greatest story is moving toward its central act. We've seen God start the process of preparing his people for it. The greatest story ever told started in the most unlikely place, Mary in Nazareth it takes an unlikely detour, you here in Abilene, and it ends in the greatest place of all, God's creation redeemed by our Savior, Jesus. I hope you will join us next week as we step into the emerging wonder of Mary and Elizabeth as they begin to see and realize the magnitude of what is brewing. For this morning, if you have a need, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.